are you? Well, I'm, I guess I'm okay. Uh, now I've recovered from my cold, but uh, wifey is deathly ill with it. It's making the rounds. Oh, jeez. Not very good at all. Did you ever have a conversation with her about uh, being impressed with your work at the Ontario Science Centre and the fact that apparently you, quote, hadn't spent the last year and a half in your office watching porn? Well, she finally has acknowledged that, that it wasn't uh, a big porn marathon. But, uh, yeah, you know, she saw the the ad there, the uh, the story in the Toronto Star, and she goes, okay, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe you were telling the truth. Have you finally friended her on Facebook? Oh, I forgot. You know what? Here, let's roll the theme. You do that right now. Okay, go ahead. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, Mark Zuckerberg or Alan's wife. Uh, She has a very low opinion of us to begin with. (laughs) She does? (laughs) She does. I thought she liked me. Well, she liked you. are fine. But she thinks that we're just like playing in our basement like some AV club kids. That's not too far from the truth. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Casey Kasem. Most remember him as the pothead sidekick of Scooby-Doo. I was afraid you'd say that. Okay, maybe not. But we'll look back at the life and outtakes of a radio legend. What every dad wants on Father's Day. Spoiler alert, it's not a dad shirt, it's not a tie, it's peace and quiet. How to play a record without a record player. The secret is lasers. We'll play a track that's more than 150 years old. Plus, the origins of crowd surfing, how two GNB listeners celebrate true love, and how changing the music changes the taste of your food. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So, where do you want to begin with Casey Kasem? Well, you know, listen, uh, where do I begin? How about we begin with you and how Casey Kasem came to be an important broadcasting icon to you now that we look back on his life after he died at age 82? When I was growing up and getting into radio, the people that I considered to be true celebrities were the guys and girls on my local radio stations. They were true, famous people. But then there was a level beyond that. There was Wolfman Jack and there was Cousin Brucey. And there was Casey Kasem. These guys were uber American DJ celebrities. And Casey was uh, Casey and Wolfman Jack were the two first two uh, DJs that I actually saw. I saw Wolfman Jack uh, on television and in American Graffiti. And I saw Casey Kasem on television as well. Uh, These guys were so far above what was happening on my local radio station that I thought, wow, that's real heavy-duty radio celebrity. You know what I mean? It was something to aspire to. Here's a smash by the first recording artist we've ever known about who's been officially named Poet Laureate of any of the 50 states. He's a singer-songwriter who took the name of the capital city of that state for his own stage name. Last month, in a proclamation released by executive order of Governor John D. Vanderhoof of the state of Colorado, he was named Poet Laureate of that Rocky Mountain state. And the week of June 24th was officially designated Welcome Back Home Again, John Denver Week. I guess it's Colorado's way of thanking John for honoring the state in his top ten hit of last year. By the way, 
Webster says a poet laureate is one regarded by a country or region as its most eminent or representative poet. His current hit is dedicated to his wife. Here's Colorado's most eminent poet at number two this week with Annie's song. You fill up my senses. He, in addition to having his, his big top 40 show, uh, really did a lot more than just that. But I suppose that's what American Top 40 is what he's really come to be known for, particularly those who came of age in the 70s, the 80s. And I would argue to a lesser degree of the 90s, that was more of a Rick D's kind of world. You know what I mean? Here's what happened. American, American Top 40 with Casey Kasem began on July 4th, 1970. And he carried that through until 1988 when he ran into a contract dispute with ABC Radio. He left the show and did not host it for a number of years. In fact, it was canceled. I think in 1995 because of low ratings, but then he resurrected it in, I want to say 1998 and then carried it through until 2004, at which point he handed it over to Ryan Seacrest. And from 2004 to 2009, he did a series of specials and and one-offs. Uh, and a couple of other shorter countdowns. But he will forever be known as the guy who did American Top 40 in the 70s and the 80s. I didn't know he was the staff announcer at NBC for a while. Yes, he was. I mean, Casey was a big deal in, in California. He did a lot of uh, voiceovers for things like TV commercials. He was uh, in a number of movies, a, lot, a number of very bad movies, um, you know, B and D movies. Uh, B and C movies, and uh, then he was the voice of Shaggy in in Scooby Doo, which a lot of people don't realize. I wonder what's behind that curtain, Scoob. The tower? No, it's not a shower. Now I go in there and take a look. <laughs> what are you, a dog or a mouse? He also was in Ghostbusters. He was. Still making headlines all across the country, the Ghostbusters are at it again. This time at the fashionable dance club, The Rose. The boys in gray slugged it out with a pretty pesky poltergeist, then stayed on to dance the night away with some of the lovely ladies who witnessed the disturbance. This is Casey Kasem. Now on with the countdown. My favorite Casey Kasem moment was actually a Casey Kasem outtake. Are we going to talk about the long-distance dedication for the dead dog? Yes. We're up to our long-distance dedication. And this one is about kids and pets and a situation that we can all understand, whether we have kids or pets or neither. It's from a man in Cincinnati, Ohio, and here's what he writes. Dear Casey, this may seem to be a strange dedication request, but I'm quite sincere, and it'll mean a lot if you play it. Recently, there was a death in our family. He was a little dog named Snuggles, but he was most certainly a part of... Let's come start again. From coming out of the record. Play the record, okay? Please. See, when you come out of those up-tempo goddamn numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions. And then you got to go into somebody dying. You know, they do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but goddamn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Is Don on the phone? Okay, I want a goddamn concerted effort to come out of a record that isn't a fucking up-tempo record every time I do a goddamn death dedication. Now, make it, and I also want to know what happened to the pictures I was supposed to see this week. This is a god, last goddamn time, I want somebody who uses fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record. 
that is uh, that, that's up tempo, and I got to talk about a fucking dog dying. It, it tells you a lot about American Top Forty uh, behind the scenes when he loses it in the studio, and, and one of, of the the curtain being pulled back moments is the realization that Casey Kasem doesn't write that show. No, he doesn't. There were seven or eight people that worked on the show with him. And I mean, it's a big deal to do a three and then four hour show. And at one point he was doing several shows. So you, of course, you have a, a, a writer and then you have to keep all these things straight and affiliate relations. I mean, this program was on a 520 plus radio stations at one point around the world and, and getting this out back in the day. I mean, this is before the Internet. So you would have to find ways of, of transmitting this program, of, of, of transporting this program to places like China and India and Australia and New Zealand. So it was, it was a, quite a deal, quite a, quite a big deal. But this, this long-distance dedication where he talks about the dead dog, this showed me that, you know, Casey was this warm and uh, non-threatening and friendly sort of guy who, you know, seemed to be really, really together. And as a radio guy growing up, Hearing this outtake, it was like, oh, thank God Casey's human. I mean, there's not a person <laughs> in the world, not a radio person in the world who has thought or said out loud this kind of thing. I think of Casey Kasem do, losing it in the studio sometimes when I have to go from a, a very serious news story to a lighthearted one. And I think the exact same thing. Of course you do. Everybody's done that. And... uh the, and even the best of them have their breaking points. So I suppose if you think about Casey Kasem as it relates to today, the equivalent would be Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest is a direct descendant of Casey Kasem. He will tell you that he modeled a lot of his career and a lot of his style on being Casey. And he is pretty much supplanted Casey in, you know, he does American Top 40. I mean, what do you want? Uh, Casey handed it over to him. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's, in fact, there's a lot of people um, who have um, Casey's DNA in terms of their, their, their radio presence, their, their radio persona, their radio shtick. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, what Casey at the, when he came back from the Korean War, he worked for American Armed Forces Radio when he was in the, in the Army. And at one point he was working in San Francisco and a general manager came to him and said, listen, you know, all the other AM radio DJs, the top 40 DJs, are, are those yammering, stammering, screaming, high-energy guys. Why don't you, you know, this is the thought, why don't you slow down and focus on talking about the records that you're playing? And Casey said, well, that's crazy. I mean, that's just not how radio was done. But after a while, he reconsidered and decided that maybe this is a way to differentiate myself from all the other fast talk and top 40 AM radio DJs. And by the time we get to July 4th, 1970, which is the debut weekend of American Top 40, he had done exactly that. Casey was the guy that gave you music news, music information, music history, music gossip on a weekly basis. And again, before the internet, this was a way a lot of people managed to keep track of what was going on in the music world. Not only did you listen to the program to see where your favorite artist and where your favorite song finished in that week's horse race, but you also listened for the where are they now segments, the interesting stories and tidbits behind the songs. You listened for the long distance dedications. You listened for the, the flashbacks and all those other things that he did. It was a real music education. And Casey always delivered it in a way that never made you feel dumb, which was really important. You, you, 
he was very inclusive in the way he presented his material. And that's why it became must-listen radio for a lot of people through several generations. Have we done him justice here? I think we have. I'd like to share with you something I've learned over the years. Success doesn't happen in a vacuum. You're only as good as the people you work with and the people you work for. I've been lucky. I've worked for and with the very best. American Top 20 is a production of the Premier Radio Networks. AT20 was created by Casey Kasem and Don Bustani. Produced by Lori Crimmy. Our staff includes Matt Wilson, Merrill Schindler, and Toby James Petty. Production and engineering by Michael Cooper and Ray Hernandez. I'm Casey Kasem. Now, one more time, the words I've ended my show with since 1970. Keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. What every dad wants on Father's Day. Did you call your dad this past weekend? I did. I No, I called him. I was at the uh, Much Music Video Awards, and I uh, knew that he was going to be out having dinner with the family earlier in the day, so uh, I stepped outside and away from the screaming Kardashian crowds and, and, uh, and call them, oh, yes. God. A colleague of mine was at the MMVAs, and someone asked me, so did you go? I'm like, no, I don't like to hang out with you know, children 30 years younger than me. Oh, it was really tough because there's all these 18 and 19-year-olds there losing their minds to Jedward and those Jenner sisters and everybody else. I'm like, I really don't care. But I was, it was kind of fun watching uh, all the, the, the young girls who were showing up in their really tight dresses tottering on Lady Gaga high. Uh, heels and, and platforms. It was really kind of funny. But you know, then I felt really dirty for looking at them. So Yeah, I could imagine you would. Yeah, so I just... Uh, and there was a lot of... So what did you do there? Well, I went. I had a glass of wine. I had a couple of uh, these mini little quiches with uh, some lobster on top and uh, did some small talk. Uh, I was on um, CTV News Channel and uh, CP24, and then I went home. I was talking about Casey Kasem, by the way. Well, hang, on, hang on. What's that noise in the background? Well, that's the schmooze. She's panting. That's schmooze? Yes. Where's Squirt? Squirt is in her cage in the living room. Ah, okay. It's bedtime. Well, I mean, of she's course. Old. She's 11 weeks old. I just had to put the little one down. Oh, well, shh. That's a good schmooze. <laughs> For the record, we're talking about a dog here. Yes, we are. We're talking about a dog. And she's just very happy to see me because she was at doggy daycare all day today and she wanted to uh, need some dad time. So did Schmooze and Squirt get you anything for Father's Day? Uh, three pairs of socks and uh, what was the You're other thing? You're kidding me. No, no. You and your wife actually do the Father's and Mother's Day gifts on behalf of your dogs? I don't. We do Christmas, but we don't do Father's and Mother's Day. But yesterday, for whatever reason, I ended up getting three pairs of socks. You know what every dad wants this Father's Day? Uh, three pairs of socks. To do whatever he wants and to be left alone. Well, this is true. We can go to brunch, go on a long walk, and then go to the grocery store and get all those ingredients for that low-carb, low-fat chicken recipe I've been wanting to try. What's your perfect Father's Day? 8 the kids do not come in and crash my bed. They gently tiptoe downstairs and pour cereal instead. 10 I wake up and my wife gives me a kiss. She says, your breath smells amazing, and look, I made you this. 30 minutes later, I head on down the stairs, and I find my final resting place and 
put my fanny there. And I love you guys, but if you ask me what I want, I'd say I won't leave the couch on Father's Day. After my 67th viewing of Die Hard, there's a sushi truck, it broke down and it's right outside my yard. They say, Pen, we are in trouble, our refrigerator's muck. Can you help us out by eating everything that's in our truck? So as I start devouring, I turn on channel three. Tiger Woods has made a miracle bounce back from surgery. And he's dominating Pinehurst and he's 15 under par. And he's texting me because he wants to hang out at the bar. So like hang out with the guys, just guys. We're not going to Perkins. But I tell him no, I'm staying here with everyone I love. And I've got this cooler filled with beer I don't need to get up. And I love you guys, but if you ask me what I want, I won't leave the couch on Father's Day. My wife comes in and cleans up all the food I didn't eat. And my daughter rubs my back while my four-year-old rubs my feet. And the thermostat is now set at a perfect 63. And my wife and kids are fine with it. Oh yeah, totally. At 4 p.m. the NFL announces a surprise. They've decided to play 16 games in June just for us guys. Oh my gosh, that plays amazing. Oh, I wish you could see too. But if we showed you game video, the NFL would sue. I have to pee, but my legs asleep. I haven't moved all day. So my family LeBron's me to the bathroom all the way. And even after that, my wife says, Hey, you want to play? It's time to leave the couch on Father's Day. Sorry. Let's just go to brunch. It's like an hour wait. What did you get for Father's Day? I mean, I, I've only got dogs. What, what, what happened to you? Uh, I got uh, a dad shirt. Okay. Which, you know, you can always tell a dad shirt. Regardless as to the style, the color, the cut, the way it hangs off your body, you know it's a dad shirt because it's a shirt you did not buy. <laughs> yeah. Someone else went, you know what? This is going to look good on you. You're going to wear it. And of course you do. And on top of that, any dad you see on Father's Day is more likely than not wearing the shirt that was given to him that morning. That's probably true. Describe your shirt, please. Uh, this is a uh, checked blue, white, and gray, which w matched with khakis and running shoes, completes the dad outfit. Yeah, you're wearing a tablecloth with khakis. Yep. And uh, yeah, I can see it. If people would like to know exactly what uh, a little Olivia is like, imagine uh, Lily from uh, Modern Family. That's Olivia. That, that, that little girl is a total bugger, and I would spank my daughter till her butt bled if she talked ooh, back that way. Ooh, now you don't want to say that. Well, no, I'll say it. I won't actually do no, it. Okay, but uh, yeah, she's, she's really like... Well, listen, last time we were over at your house, yes. uh, Marielle and I look at each other and go, yeah, that's Lily. <laughs> a less Vietnamese Lily. I would hope substantially less Vietnamese. Otherwise, I've got a conversation to have with wifey. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. Why you can't stop your earbuds from getting tangled. Yeah, I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Let me just see if I can... There's math involved here. Well, there is. I'm looking at the the mat the, the sorry I've, I've I've already had a one of these ah I see okay I started before you because we were supposed to record this about ten minutes earlier yeah right okay so hang yeah. on here 
So we've got a chart here that shows not probability versus string length. Right. There's a little known scientific reason for tangled earbuds. It's really hard to explain because it involves uh, measuring the probability of forming a knot versus cord length in something called sigmoidal functions. I do not understand this, but here's the shortest version. Because Apple's earbud cords are 139 centimeters long, math says, and we've got the chart here if you want to look it up, math says that they are subject to a 50% tangle rate. And if you really want to know more, Google an academic paper called Spontaneous Knotting of an Agitated String, and <laughs> it'll be laid out for you. Not that it's going to help, of course, but again, if you want to, there is a reason. It's not you. I mean, no matter how carefully you wind them up and put them in your pocket or your purse or the drawer or whatever it is, chances are they're going to be tangled when you pull them out. It has to do with spontaneous knotting of an agitated string and these sigmoidal functions that nobody can understand. Was an agitated string a new wave band in the 80s? That's actually a really good name for a band. I would think so. A sigmoid function is a mathematical function with an S shape. Uh, so other examples include the Gompert curve used in modeling systems that saturate at large values and the OG curve. So that explains it. Okay. See? Mm. Other, okay. Here's what you need to know about uh, tangled earbuds. It's not your fault. There's a better than 50% chance that they'll get tangled themselves because they're of that length and they fall on that point on the curve. There are all sorts of little gadgets you can get to wind up your headphones. Oh, of course there are. But no one ever uses them. You, no. you buy it, you use it for a week, it's a pain in the ass, you never use it again. No, I mean, there's all kinds. If you go on, on, on online and you'll find all kinds of videos telling you how to uh, wind them up around your, your fingers in particular ways so that they stay. No, I, nobody's got time. As part of that paper tides, uh, titled Spontaneous Knotting of an Agitated String by Dorian Raymer and Douglas Smith at the University of California at San Diego's Department of Physics, they did this test 3,415 times, which is about the same number of times I do it on the streetcar ride into work. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, string theory set aside, it is not the stupidest thing you've come across lately. The stupidest thing apparently is Cassette Store Day coming back. Why, why is this happening? It's the second annual Cassette Store Day. It's happening in uh, September. It's just a, a goofy, it's a goofy, misguided bit of nostalgia for a format that really should be put to death. It is done. It, there's nothing, nothing about cassettes. And we're talking about pre-recorded cassettes here, specifically pre-recorded cassettes. Right. Which if anybody spent any time buying these things in the 1980s, you'll know what piles of dung they were because the tapes stretched. They had terrible frequency response. The, uh, Cases always broke, especially around the hinges. The 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 uh, the shells of the cassettes were glued together, and they would f crack and warp and do all sorts of things. The tapes would jam. Why anybody would want to go back to pre-recorded cassettes? You 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 obviously don't remember how awful they were. I suppose we'll find the answer on September twenty seventh when cassette store day returns. Yeah. Well, pff, you know, and an eight oh eight state, which is. A band named after a drum machine. That's right. Uh, they're from Manchester. They were, um, they are a, um, uh, you know, 80s, early 90s-ish acidy rave house band. Uh, they've uh, remastered a couple of their CDs and they're putting them out on cassette. Like, come on, will you, why are you, re you spend all this time and effort remastering an album only to put it out on an inferior format. What's wrong with you? We haven't gotten an Ask Alan Anything question in a while. So maybe I can ask you a question in the absence of a listener doing so. Okay. 
Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Why, at the beginning of some cassettes, did you hear that low to high pitched tone? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was a calibration tone for the duplication machines, I believe. Then why did I need to hear it? I don't know. Again, that tells you exactly why cassettes are stupid. Is this sort of the audio equivalent to your box of cereal with the circle with the cross through it in multicolors so that as the box itself was going down the assembly line, the quality assurance person could make sure that the three part printing process was working properly? It could be. Let me just... Uh, um, okay, hang on here. One moment, please. The XDR was called was uh, this this tone you're talking about is called extended dynamic range, also known as SDR, super dynamic range, a quality control and duplication process for mass production pre-recorded audio cassettes. It's a process designed to provide higher quality audio on pre-recorded cassettes by checking the sound quality at all stages of the tape duplication process. In this way, the dynamic range of audio recorded on an XDR duplicated cassette can be up to 13 decibels higher. Uh, recording a short test tone burst at the beginning and end of the program material on the cassette to detect for any loss of audio frequencies in the audio spectrum. The tone burst, contests, uh, tone burst consists of 11 tones, uh, about 0.127 seconds in length, going from 32 to, to 18,000 hertz. There you go. So that's, I was right. But at the same time, it still comes back to my original point, which was, why did they not remove that as part of the process? No clue. On the topic of dead audio formats, you have found in the Journal of Musical Things, Irene, the machine that's saving lost recordings. This is fascinating. What do you do when you want to play back music from a dead format? Like, there are no proper playback mechanisms for for like a a, a disc or sorry like a wax cylinder yeah like, like edison who basically invented the recording medium did so on a technology that that doesn't exist anymore right and you could and you could simply reverse engineer an edison phonograph but these cylinders are so fragile that you don't want to physically touch the grooves in any way shape or form it's it's just you know, they're, they're just, it's just too dangerous. So the solution is lasers. The solution is lasers. Now, there's this thing called IRENE. It stands for Image Reconstruction Erase Noise Etc., <laughs> which is a, a, well, okay, it's called IRENE because the first recording that they used to, that, that, that this thing retrieved was uh, Goodnight IRENE by the Weavers. So they just thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So we'll just call this machine Irene. Yeah, I love how you shoehorn in an acronym into a name. Yeah, well, that's exactly what they did. So what they what this thing does is uh, it's it's an image. It's a digital imaging, imaging device. 
And what it does is it scans the topography of whatever it is that you're trying to um, decode or encode. And since that image, it produces to a computer. And then that computer reconstructs those images into, into sound. Now, not only does this thing work on things like uh, old records that you don't want to put a needle on anymore uh, or, or things like um, wax cylinders, but uh, you can also, I, I think this is the machine that there was a record, a very a, a good photograph of a record in a magazine, in a German magazine. And I think it was a speech by Bismarck. But it was only a photograph of this record. And the actual record itself had long since disappeared. And they were able to scan the photograph with enough accuracy to reproduce that record from a picture. Wow. That's cool. That's really cool. There was an inventor back in the 1800s named uh, De Martinville who had come up with a device named, uh, modeled after the human ear canal, and it worked by having a stylus attached to a piece of parchment. It's called the phonoautograph, yes. And in 1860, he recorded a French folk song called Au Claire de la Lune. It was his daughter singing. It was the earliest known recording of a human voice. It was a diaphragm connected to a stylus, which then vibrated in sympathy to the sound waves coming in through a a, 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 a cone that collected sound. The pri- so what you ended up with, and with the stylus would basically uh, outline the waveform on a piece of paper that had been coated with lamp black or, or coal soot. So what that was, what that allowed uh, the Martinville to do is see what sound looked like. Okay. But it was just a picture. It was a, a waveform, uh, a representation of, of sound. But a couple of years ago, what they did was they got this representation, this drawing of a waveform, and they were able to put it through a series of computer programs, and they were able to decode it so we can actually hear what his daughter sounded like singing Au Claire de Lune back in 1860. It's, it's a very rough recording, but you can tell that it's a woman singing a song. This is 154 years old. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, when I um, I do this uh, science of rock and roll exhibit at uh, it's right now it's at the Ontario Science Center, and we talk about uh, the phonoautograph, and uh, it's it's basically there was an oscilloscope. That, that's right. what it was. Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good example. Yeah, but you just could see what sound looked like, but you just couldn't play it back. And it took another twenty no, another seventeen years before Edison figured that out. Think the internet is cool? Geeksandbeats.com is now available on computers. Read the stories the boys are talking about, stream the latest episode, and get caught up on back issues of the world's most popular podcast, geeksandbeats.com. Also available on CD ROM. Have you ever crowd surfed at a concert? No, not not voluntarily. Wait a minute, not voluntarily. What does that mean? Uh, I may have been picked up and chucked out. <laughs> Did you rush like a, a Backstreet Boys concert something? Get thrown out? No, I may have uh, jumped off a stage. And not been received well by those below. Oh. And sort of manhandled out. 
Well, you're a pretty big guy. If you were coming at me off an eight-foot-high stage, I don't think I would want to help you surf across the crowd either. But can, can I can I tell you a, sir, a crowd surfing story? It's it's, it's a good one. Um, Edgefest 2000. Matthew Goodband's playing. And he had a whole bunch of characters on stage with him, including a guy dressed in a panda suit. Pardon? Guy in the panda suit was uh, from Matt's record company. And and, uh, he was the guy in charge of promoting and marketing Matt's music. So the panda comes dancing out and he comes to the edge of the stage. And uh, the crowd starts yelling, jump, jump, jump. So the panda goes, what, me, me, stage dive? So the panda backs up. And takes a running leap into the crowd off a stage that's probably 10 or 12 feet high. The audience parts like the Red Sea. Of course. And the panda like slams face down into the hard ground. At which point the crowd converges on the panda and starts kicking the crap out of him. (laughs) (laughs) So there are pictures of, of my buddy in the panda suit. And he's got his big panda paws over his big panda eyes as people are just taking the boots to him. And uh, by the time we got him out of the crowd and the panda head off him, the panda head was built on a football helmet. Oh, yeah. And when he hit the ground, he broke his nose and there was blood all over the place. But you have to see the picture of the panda getting beaten up. It is just it's the funniest thing. It really, really is. Do you have that photo somewhere? Because you need to scan that in. We need to make that the show cover art. Okay, let me see if I can find it. my, My. I hope I do, because it's just way too funny. I ask because uh, our recent Geeks and Beats listener and contributor, Matthew Smith, wrote this fabulous article on the origins of crowd surfing. You know who did it first? Um, Iggy Pop? Iggy Pop. The Cincinnati Summer Pop Festival of 1970. Iggy Pop with the Stooges went into the crowd three times before he took the leap forward into the sea of fans. And they raised him by his legs and egged on the audience. When they put him down, uh, according to Matthew, he smeared peanut butter on his chest and was helped back on stage by the crew. Yeah, that was Iggy's act back then. I, I remember seeing footage of that there's actually did you say cleveland or cincinnati cincinnati we've got it on the geeks and beats website the rare footage of him as part of this documentary it's about an eight and a half minute clip or so so you got to be patient okay yeah he's uh he was probably some some people say it was jim morrison too Mm. but i'm gonna give it to iggy because iggy did it on a consistent basis in the 80s peter gabriel had apparently a tradition of crowd surfing when he performed lay your hands on me I saw that a number of times. I remember the first time I saw it. He would go to the edge of the stage and form this Christ-like on the crucif- or Christ-like pose and fall backwards into the crowd. Ooh, the trust fall. Oh, the trust fall. And then they would pass him, the crowd would pass him over his head as he lay in that crucifix position and then eventually put him back on stage. I remember the first time I saw that, I just, I, I went... <gasps> You know, oh, God, a very, very powerful thing. Apparently, Schmooze agrees. Yes, she does. Um, that we have uh, some blackbirds in the backyard that she does not like. Shut up. Let me close the studio door. There we go. <laughs> One last shot from Schmooze. <laughs> uh, guess who the first American to crowd surf in communist Russia was back in 1987? 19- 87, first American to crowd surf in the Soviet Union. I'll give you a hint. He refuses to take responsibility for the fire. 
Yes, Schmooze, you're right. Billy Joel. Billy Joel? Yes. You know, I, I, you know, I was going to say that because there weren't a lot of Western artists touring Russia in 1987. And I know that there was, I, I know that Billy Joel was one of them, I, but really? Matthew, thank you so much for uh, being a guest blogger on the big show. Geeksandbeats.com is where you'll find uh, that latest uh, article, which brings us to a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. I screwed up. What? How? I screwed up big time. When uh, we had that big failure with our server, when it restarted, one little feature didn't kick in on our contact form. So everybody who has been communicating with us over the course of the last several months... I never got the message. Oh, dear. Okay. Yeah. We have, as it stands, 1,024 <laughs> messages sitting in an outbox waiting for me to receive it. We had been asking people, hey, would you like to contribute to the show, as Matthew has done and Steve Feek had done the week before, writing in about that uh, fabulous uh, uh, photo collection from uh, of the Millennium Falcon from the upcoming Star Wars movie. Uh, other people had said, yeah, I want to write for the show. I want to produce the show. I want to be a web developer for the show. I want to do all this stuff. I want to help you guys out. And we, uh, at least from their perspective, ignored them. Oh, dear. Uh, well, yeah. see, I feel a little bit better because we weren't getting an awful lot of uh, a lot of response. And I thought, well, maybe people aren't listening or maybe they don't like us. Um, I immediately assume people didn't like us. Well, yeah. That's my nature. Yeah, uh, So too. we apologize uh, for ignoring you. We didn't intend to. Uh, clearly, this technical glitch had prevented your email messages from being delivered to us through the server. But I have now cleared that backlog. I have uh, communicated with everyone. If I haven't gotten to you, it's uh, clearly because I'm not interested in what you have to say. <laughs> But having said that, um, if you are interested in writing for the show or maybe you'd like to um, be a video producer, because I think there might be an interest in us doing this show in a live to air format. One day we'll have to try that. We'll have to find an appropriate venue, but I certainly wouldn't mind doing that. All right. So if you're interested, just go to geeksandbeats.com. All the details are, are on there. Meantime, we had uh, a pair of Geeks and Beats listeners celebrating true love recently. Oh. Garth Newton and Alyssa VC got married on uh, May the 4th, or May 24th, excuse me, as we discussed recently. And they tweeted a photo of the two of them on their wedding day holding their matching Geeks and Beats miracle travel mugs of traveling. Very nice. I know. You too can actually pick yourself up this miracle travel mug, as you have finally done, and you said that uh, the thing works. I don't even have one. Wifey got one, and then she threw it out on me. Why? Why? She said it was too heavy. No, no, no. They're fantastic mugs. That's what I thought. Oh, no, I, did I tell you that I knocked one over, a full one over? It was full of hot coffee, and uh, I, I don't know what happened, but I, but I knocked it over, hit the floor... And uh, maintained its integrity. It's got a slight dent in the bottom, so it wobbles a little bit. Yeah, but so do we. Yeah, well, I kept all the coffee inside. It was great. No, 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 no. 
If you would like to get a Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling or maybe a ceramic mug for the desk, just go to thegeeksandbeats.com. Check out the swag store. We've got a t-shirt or two on there as well. Helps uh, the program. As a matter of fact, amongst the thousand messages waiting in the outbox, one of them was, you know, guys, I really wish you'd rather get sponsors than beg for money. Yes, we would. uh, Yes, but uh, that's easier said (laughs) than done. Having trouble cutting down on sweets? You just change your background music. This is rather interesting. It's called sonic seasoning. Apparently, you can trick your body into thinking something that you're eating is sweeter or saltier than it normally is by playing an appropriate type of music in the background. Researchers at Oxford University say we can reduce our cravings for sugar by tricking the brain into thinking this by doing so the certain type of music. You play the music while you're eating and whatever on your plate tastes 10% sweeter than it actually is. Yeah. And what I find interesting is that this also works for wine. Oh, really? Yes, it does. If, uh, for example, experiments with diners have indicated that if you have a Cabernet Sauvignon, Mm-hmm. You should really play the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. And it brings out the uh, uh, notes of the wine better. Apparently, you can, if, if, you're, if you're drinking um, a Merlot, a great song to pair with it is Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, I'm not much of a wine drinker, but I do like to have dinner parties. So I put a lot of time and effort into thinking about these issues, like pairing the wine with the the meat, etc. Are you telling me now my musical playlist also has to be synchronized to the beverage I'm serving? According to Boffins at Oxford University. Uh, I would like a playlist. My favorite wine is is Bordeaux. A nice red Bordeaux. I would like to know... I would like to have a playlist of all the songs that bring out the best in a Bordeaux. I have no idea what they would be, but I'm sure that uh, somebody would be able to figure that out. Wow, combining music snob and wine snob? Doesn't get any better than that. Catch all (laughs) new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.